202 decades. If you've looked at the runtime for this episode, I have some explaining to do. So, the original plan was to have three prologue episodes in total. An episode on prehistory, an episode on history from the first writing to Alexander the Great, and then a final episode on the Roman world from its founding to the year 1 AD. This would set us up for a jump into the main body of the podcast. That plan quickly got derailed when it hit the speed bump of the Greco-Persian Wars, and I couldn't help but go into more detail. So, here we have an episode on the Greek world. Even with this extra prologue, I've had to cut things short. I fail to discuss Greek mythology, religion, or philosophy in any real way. I promise once we get to the decades, we will be able to slow down and catch our breath. A little. Let's turn our attention back toward Greece once again. The last time we looked here, the great palaces of the Mycenaeans were aflame. As I mentioned then, the destruction brought by the Bronze Age collapse saw populations plummet. Society devolved into simple subsistence farming and pastoralism. Thus began what has been called the Greek Dark Age. Just like the Dark Age that followed it by 1600 years, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the darkness refers to the lack of sources. The Linear B script used by the Mycenaeans ceased to be used. Literacy became rare. But the term Dark Age has generally fallen out of favor in both contexts for being a value judgment. History, it said, should be objective. But to push back on the idea a little bit, for the majority of Greeks, or proto-Greeks, life in the Dark Age was likely harsher than their great-grandparents had faced. There was a good chance your village was now either abandoned or half-empty. Higher-level political control seems to have essentially ceased, and with it, monumental stone structures stopped being built. In its place, the building block of society became the oikos, the household a family unit that operated similar to that of many tribal societies. Although it was a dark age, we do know a little of the events that occurred between about 1050 and 800 BC. Some of the Greeks left for the Aegean coast of Anatolia and settled in what would later be called Ionia. Iron began to be used, and refinements were made in pottery. Some areas began to recover sooner than others. In the later half of the Greek Dark Ages, Attica, where Athens is located, the island of Euboea, with its old city of Chalcis, and central Crete began to pick back up in trade and re-establish themselves economically. Finally, after two centuries, populations began to rise, trade picked back up in the Aegean, and the Greek Dark Ages gave way to Archaic Greece, around the year 800. With this growth came increased urbanization and the establishment of the polis, the independent Greek city-states, each with its own political system. And, with the increase in administration and trade, writing began to be used again. But Linear B had been forgotten. Borrowed from the Phoenicians, the Greek alphabet came into use. Lastly, a final distinction between the Dark Ages and what followed was the establishment in 776 BC of the Olympic Games. I would love to stop and gawk at this moment, but a whole podcast series could be written on this. We must press on. When we talk about the Greeks of the Archaic and Classical Age, it's important to remember that while they shared a language and could be considered a distinct people, they were far from united. 
In Greek mythology, Helen was the father of the Greeks, holding the same place as Jacob would have for the Israelites. Even today, the Greek name for Greece is Hellas. Helen was the grandson of the Titan Prometheus, who granted the use of fire to humanity. He had three sons, Doris, Xuthos, and Aelus. Xuthos had two sons of his own, Ion and Achaeus. These would be the forefathers of the four Greek tribes, Doris of the Dorians, Aeolus of the Aeolians, Xuthus, father of Ion of the Ionians, and Achaeus of the Achaeans. The Achaeans were the original Greeks, inhabiting the southern part of the Greek peninsula called the Peloponnese. The Dorians were a more barbarous tribe, originating in the north of Greece. But in an invasion during the Dark Age, they swept south and conquered much of the Peloponnese, Crete, and many Aegean islands. The Ionians originated in the area around Euboea and the Attic Peninsula. Early on, they colonized the Aegean Islands and the opposite coast of the Aegean in modern Turkey. The inhabitants of the Attic Peninsula, which included Athens, were a distinct branch of the Ionians. And last, the Aeolians were from north-central Greece around Boeotia and Thessaly and spoke a dialect which retained some ancient features of Mycenaean. They also had colonies on the coast of Anatolia, generally north of the scattering of Ionian cities, which later became Ionia. Other Greeks lurked on the peripheries of these four tribes. Of most note are the Macedonians, who during much of early Greek history were considered little more than barbarians. We're now approaching a portion of history that our culture still remembers, the Greco-Persian Wars. But it is important to mention a few prior events. Around the year 735 BC, the First Messanian War began between Sparta, one of the chief Dorian cities, and the Messanians. These two cities were rivals in the Peloponnese, which is the southernmost peninsula of Greece. In short, the Spartans won, conquered the Messanians, and took them as a slave people, the Helots. This conflict both established the Spartan reputation for military prowess and allowed the Spartan citizens to further focus their society on warfare, now that their Helot slaves could tend the fields. But at this point, Sparta was still a peripheral power in the Greek world. The main hub of Greek power lay on the long island of Euboea, just off the coast of Attica. In the Lelantine War around 720 BC, the cities of Chalcis and Eritrea fought for control of the fertile plain between their cities. These two powers fought an exhaustive war, which went on to draw in most of the Greek city-states. Thucydides says, There was no union of subject cities around a great state, no spontaneous combination of equals for confederate expeditions. The nearest approach to a coalition took place in the old war between Chalcis and Eritrea. This was a quarrel in which the rest of the Hellenic name did, to some extent, take sides. Whatever the details of the war, it devastated both sides, and Euboea lost its role as a center of the Greek world. The 8th and 7th centuries BC were the heyday of Greek colonization. I mentioned the Greek colonies a few times in the past episode in passing, but let's look a little closer at them. 
While the migrations and invasions of the Mycenaean Greeks in times past had not been organized, these colonies were official expeditions of colonists sent by a specific polis. Each colony abroad was loyal to its mother city first and its tribe second. The distinction between tribes was not left behind back in the homeland. These colonies were spattered across the Mediterranean and Black Seas. Colonies could be found in southern Spain, southern France, Libya, the south coast of Anatolia, up the Anatolian coast of the Aegean Sea, at the meeting point of Europe and Asia, along the western Black Sea coast, and even on Crimea. But one area of the Mediterranean attracted the most Greek attention, Sicily and southern Italy. The very first colonies were sent by Chalcis to Sicily. Likewise, the Greek presence in the boot of Italy was so complete the area was long called Magna Graecia. In fact, even today, a small minority of the population of southern Italy speaks a dialect of Greek. The cities of Ionia were not technically colonies. They had been in existence for longer than the polis itself. But it would be these cities, where Dark Age Greeks had settled, that would bring the Greek world into the hungering gaze of Persia. Just outside the Greek world, to the east of the Ionian cities, lay the kingdom of Lydia. This kingdom slowly filled the void left behind in Anatolia by the fall of the Hittites in the Bronze Age collapse. Like their predecessors, they spoke an Indo-European language. In fact, Lydian was a close cousin of Hittite, and another member of the now-extinct Anatolian branch of the Indo-European family tree. Lydia's capital was at Sardis, just 50 miles west of Smyrna, modern Izmir. According to Herodotus, it was the Lydians who first used precious metals as coinage. During the late 600s and early 500s BC, the Lydian kingdom expanded toward the east and came into conflict with the powers of Mesopotamia and beyond. In the 590s, war broke out between the Lydians and the Medes, then the preeminent power in Iran prior to the rise of Cyrus and the Persians. They fought a bitter war for five years, until in 585, in what would be their final battle, a sign from heaven intervened. During the fighting, a solar eclipse took place, and darkness covered the battlefield. Both sides took the omen to heart and called off their fighting. Now with eastward expansion sealed off by the heavens, in the 550s BC, the Lydians looked to the west and found the Aegean trade too lucrative not to dip their toes into. But the Lydian king, Croesus, decided not to dip, but to dive. In his reign, all of Ionia came under his control, and the kingdom reached the heights of its power. But these heights would not be enough to stop the prowling lion that was the new Persian Empire. The downfall of Lydia was a personal affair. King Croesus' brother-in-law, Astyages, was the king of the Medes. As in later times, many of these royal families were interrelated. Astyages' other brother-in-law was none other than Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. In 550 BC, as we discussed last time, Cyrus rebelled against the Median Empire and overthrew King Astyages, his own grandfather. As the ally and family of the Medes and their king, Croesus and the Lydians retaliated by attacking the Persian-friendly city of Ptera in modern Cappadocia, the region of east-central Anatolia. The Lydians put the city to siege and captured it, but the Persians retaliated. 
Cyrus himself led the army and fought the Lydians to a stalemate outside the city. With winter approaching, the Lydian army retreated to protect the capital city, Sardis. Ancient armies didn't commonly stay in the field during winter, so the Lydians were taken off guard when Cyrus' army was discovered still advancing on Sardis. Pulling together his allies, Croesus gathered a large army back together to wipe out the Persians in a final battle. The Persians were outnumbered two to one. In the Battle of Thimbra, the Persians proved they had the tactical edge, if not the numeric. The Persian cavalry was able to drive off the Lydian cavalry and then swing around and smash into the sides of the Lydian infantry lines. Cyrus's army won decisively. The majority of the Lydians surrendered, but Croesus and a small remnant of his army fled to the capital. The Persians pursued and put Sardis under siege. Still confident in surviving, thanks to the fortifications of Sardis, Croesus called for aid from his allies, the Egyptians, Babylonians, and even the Spartans, who maintained ties with the Lydians. The king assumed he would have time to hold out and wait for his allies to arrive and drive the Persians off. Many sieges lasted for months or years. The Spartans, though, were busy fighting with Argos, and their first encounter with the Persians would have to wait another 60 years. But it wouldn't have mattered. The siege lasted only 14 days before the Persians found an undefended area of the wall and swarmed over it. Like the Median Empire and soon the Babylonian Empire, the Lydian Empire was no more. The Persians incorporated the territories of Lydia into a satrapy, which is a province. Shortly after, they conquered the cities of Ionia. The stage was set for the great Greco-Persian Wars. Forty years after their conquest by Persia, the cities of Ionia were chafing under their new masters. The Ionians had not given up their independent spirit and were constantly subverting the purposes of their rulers. In response, the Persians had appointed tyrants to rule each of their cities. But this harsher and more direct rule only pushed the Ionians closer to revolt. In 499 BC, the tyrant of Miletus, an Ionian city on the southwest coast of Anatolia, attempted to conquer the island of Noxos. The expedition went terribly, and sensing his impending dismissal, he rallied the other Ionian cities into a full rebellion. Joining them in throwing off the Persians were the Aeolian cities on the coast further to the north, the Greeks of Caria, the region to the south of Ionia, as well as the Greeks of Cyprus. At first, these rebels had the momentum. With aid from Athens and the city of Eritrea, the Ionians captured and burned down the city of Sardis. But on the return to the coast, they were caught by a Persian army and defeated at the Battle of Ephesus. From here on, the rebels were on the defensive. In 497, three Persian armies marched out to encircle the rebels. The largest army went south, into Caria, where they were ambushed and annihilated. This set back the Persian reconquest, and a stalemate held the next two years. In 494 BC, though, the Persians had regrouped and decided to go for the jugular by attacking the center of the rebellion, Miletus. The Ionians tried to prevent the Persian navy from joining the siege of Miletus, but they were defeated, and in 493, Miletus fell. This effectively ended the rebellion, and the Carians and the other Ionian cities surrendered. The Persian king Darius was merciful in his peace offering to the Ionians. The intervention of the Athenians and the Eritreans, however, would not be forgiven. 
Darius saw how the meddling Greek city-states could disrupt his empire and resolved to conquer all of Greece. In 492, an invasion force was sent out across the Bosporus, the narrow gap between Europe and Asia. The Persians reasserted control over the European side, called Thrace, and Macedonia, before heading back to Anatolia. Following this show of force on the periphery of the Greek world, King Darius sent ambassadors to all the city-states of Greece, advising their submission. All but two agreed, Athens and Sparta. The defiance of these two city-states spurred a new Persian expedition in 490 BC. An invasion force left from Cilicia, the fertile region in the southeast corner of Anatolia, and began to island hop across the Aegean. The Persians made a pit stop at Naxos, which Herodotus called the most prosperous Greek island of the era. They captured it and burned it. Their next target was Euboea, upon which sat the city of Eritrea. King Darius had not forgotten the city's role in the Ionian Revolt. The city was besieged, but quickly fell. It was sacked, looted, and its citizens enslaved. A clear example to any other cities thinking of rebellion. Finally, we come to the part of the story you might already know. From Euboea, the fleet sailed south to Marathon on the Attic Peninsula, a day's march from Athens. The plain of Marathon seemed an ideal location to unload and get in fighting order before advancing on the defiant Athenians. But as they began to disembark, up on the hill line stood a wall of Athenian hoplites, the heavily armored Greek infantry. The two sides faced off for several days. The Persians perhaps awaiting discovery of a way around the soldiers, and the Athenians awaiting the arrival of the Spartans, who were delayed due to a religious festival. There's some confusion on what ended the stalemate. A good theory is that the cavalry, which was the Persians' strength, began to be packed back into the ships. Their goal was to sail around the tip of Attica and land nearer to Athens while the army was away. So, once the cavalry was packed up, the Athenians saw their opportunity and attacked. In an armored line, the Athenian hoplites ran down the hill and crashed into the hastily organized Persians. Perhaps the most famous battle of Western history had begun. In short, the Athenians were able to envelop the Persians and inflict heavy casualties. The Persians, in a panic, fled back to their ships. More than 6,000 Persians lay dead, while only 192 Athenians perished. The Athenians were victorious and proved to the Greeks that Persia could be beat. But the danger was not at an end. Rather than return home, the Persian ships sailed around the tip of Attica, around Cape Sunian, to attack the undefended city of Athens, while the army was still away at Marathon. But when the ships pulled into the harbor of Athens, they were greeted by that same Athenian army. The soldiers had quickly marched in their heavy armor, still exhausted from battle, the 25 miles back to beat the ships. Realizing their plans had been dashed, the fleet returned home. The Persian threat had been repulsed, for now. Darius quickly began gathering an even larger army to end the Greeks for good. But outside circumstances intervened. In 486, the Egyptians revolted against the Persian rule, and while preparing an army to quell the revolts, Darius died. Rule of his empire passed to his son, Xerxes I. In 480, Xerxes put together an enormous army, 
most scholars think it was around 200,000 men and began a second invasion of Greece. This was to be a coordinated land and sea campaign, with a fleet of warships able to logistically support the army. Crossing from Anatolia to Thrace across the Hellespont, Xerxes even ordered a floating pontoon bridge constructed. In the ten years since Marathon, Athens, under the instruction of Themistocles, had constructed a new navy using proceeds from a great vein of silver found in Attica. But they didn't have the manpower to sustain both an army and a navy. They would need friends. Fortunately, many of the Greek city-states were amenable to opposition. Of the 700 or so Greek city-states, 70 joined an alliance to resist the Persians. Notable amongst them were Athens, Sparta, Corinth, and Megara. Absent, however, was Thebes. While the immense army of Persia marched south, the Greek allies gathered to discuss how to stop such a large force. A choke point would be needed where the Persians' numerical superiority would give way to the Greeks' qualitative superiority. A number of locations were suggested, but finally the site of Thermopylae was decided upon. A second choke point would be attempted at sea, blocking the Straits of Artemisium. A further line of defense was set up for the narrow Isthmus of Corinth, which connects the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnese. Despite this planning, Xerxes' movement south caught the Greek alliance at an inopportune time. It was both the Olympic season and the Spartan festival of Carnea. The Spartans could not and would not fight during these festivals. For the city, their religious observance was more important than stopping any invasion. The full army would not go. But the threat was severe enough to send a small force, 300 Spartans, including one of their two kings, Leonidas. It would not be 300 verse 200,000 though, despite the poetry of the movie of the same name. On the march to Thermopylae, allies joined the 300, and by the time they reached Thermopylae, historians think there must have been at least 7,000 Greek soldiers. They lined up across the 100-meter-wide pass and withstood the full Persian army for three days before a mountain pass was found to circumvent the Greek army. Knowing they were surrounded, at least 3,000 of the Greeks retreated, while Leonidas led a last stand. They fought to the last man, and all were slain. Up to 20,000 Persians were killed, and although the event is remembered as one of history's greatest last stands, the huge Persian army was more delayed than wounded. Simultaneously, about 50 miles away, in the narrow straits between Euboea and the mainland, the Athenians were engaged in the Battle of Artemisium. The 271 Greek trireme ships were attempting to block passage of the Persian navy through the straits. Fortune was on the Greeks' side. First, a third of the roughly 1,200 Persian ships were destroyed in a storm. Then, seeing the Greeks blocking the straits, 200 ships were sent around the Isle of Euboea to surround them, but these ships too were destroyed in another storm. Back at the straits, the remaining Persian ships, still with a big numerical advantage, engaged in small skirmishes with the Greeks. On the third day, the main battle took place, with each side suffering similar losses. With their smaller number of ships, these losses were unsustainable for the Greeks. The battle ended that day with nightfall. As the Greek allies discussed whether to continue trying to hold the straits, they received word of the defeat at Thermopylae. With their strategy requiring the blocking of both land and sea having failed, the navy retreated toward Athens. 
Having dispelled the Greeks at land and at sea, Persians headed further south, with the path to Attica and Athens open to them. The Greek navy arrived at Athens and helped in the final evacuations of its citizens to the Peloponnese. Athens was left nearly deserted, abandoned to the enemy. Atop the Acropolis, a few Athenians resisted, but the Persians soon broke in and destroyed the temples in the Acropolis and burned Athens to the ground. A new line of defense was made by the Allies at the Isthmus of Corinth, and a wall was constructed. But again, the Allies would have to be victorious at stopping both the land and sea forces of the Persians. The land defenses were strong, but could easily be bypassed if Xerxes had control of the seas. In the Battle of Salamis, Xerxes looked to knock out the Greek navy in a decisive battle. The Allies, on the other hand, had found the Straits of Artemisium too wide. They lay in wait in an even narrower position in the Straits of Salamis. Once the Persian ships, numbering about seven or 800, entered the tight waters of the strait, the Greek ships, under the command of Themistocles, numbering about 350, attacked. In the cramped space, the Persians were not able to maneuver, and the Greeks were able to sink at least 200 of their ships, bringing a decisive victory to the allied city-states. Watching from a hillside overlooking the water, Xerxes was witness to the destruction of his navy. Salamis was a turning point in the second invasion. The alliance had avoided total defeat. Xerxes returned to Sardis, but a large Persian army remained in Thrace under the general Mardonius. The following year, after spending the intervening months subduing the north of Greece, Mardonius's army headed south and reoccupied Athens. When summer arrived, word reached Mardonius that a large army had left the Peloponnese and was marching toward him. He and his army retreated north of Attica to the region of Boeotia, where a fortified camp was built. The Persians had picked the site near the town of Plataea for its plain, which would allow the full use of the cavalry, which the Persians never seemed to get to use against the Greeks. The Greek army followed and took up a position on a hillside overlooking the Persians at Plataea, not letting themselves be drawn into a position where the cavalry could be used. For eleven days, a standoff ensued. The Greek line had the Athenians at the left, a mix of several city-states at the center, and the Spartans on the right. Mardonius's cavalry employed hit-and-run tactics to harass the Allied line and perhaps provoke them to come down from the hills. Although they had some success in these skirmishes, in one of the charges the cavalry commander was killed and the rest of the horsemen fled. Encouraged by this small victory, and with the threat of the cavalry seemingly neutralized, the Allies moved lower on the hill, where there was a better water source. But Mardonius was willing to wait. He sent forces to halt the supplies being brought over the hillside to the Greek army, and despite their general being killed, the cavalry was able to seize and destroy the sole well the Greeks were relying on for water. With their supplies interrupted, the Greeks waited two more days, hoping for an opportunity to present itself. None came. Finally, the Allies decided a retreat was needed, but it would have to be done at night to prevent a full charge of the Persians after them. Night fell, but the retreat was sloppy. The center third of the line had gone the wrong direction, and when day broke, the Athenians on the left and the Spartans on the right hadn't even begun to retreat yet. In the morning light, Mardonius saw the disorder of the Greek lines and ordered a full assault. The Greeks, split into two sections, spun around to face their enemies, to not get caught with their backs turned while fleeing. 
On the left, the Athenian hoplites had the grim honor of fighting another force of hoplites, the Thebans, who had allied with the Persians. On the other side of the field, the Spartans faced a huge army of Persians. As was seen at Marathon and Thermopylae, the heavily armed and armored Greek hoplites were more than a match for the less well-armored Persians. The Spartans cut into the Persian lines and advanced. Mardonius was there on his white horse, shouting commands, surrounded by his thousand-man bodyguard of elite infantry called the Immortals. The Spartans pressed closer, hit Mardonius in the head, knocking him off his horse and killing him. Seeing their general fall, the Persians' morale sank, and all but the bodyguard began to flee. Back across the field, the Athenians had just won a grueling push of shield and spear against the Thebans, the remainder of whom, seeing the Persians fleeing, fled themselves, though in a different direction, back towards Thebes. Although disordered and sloppy, the battle was a great victory for the allied Greeks. This victory was not just a stalling or wounding of the Persians. This victory was not just a stalling or wounding of the Persians, it was a total victory and destruction of the Persian army. Xerxes' general was dead and gone. The second Persian invasion, like the first, had been repulsed. A few notes before we continue. There's no doubt I've gone into too much detail in this description of the Greco-Persian Wars, even if it's only been an outline of the events. But for a few reasons, I wanted to zoom in here. First, this style of detailed narrative is much more like what the main body of this series will be like rather than the quick bouncing from topic to topic we've had so much of so far in these prologue episodes. Second, these battles are massively influential, both in the Roman world we'll discuss next time, and in our own world. Today, these battles are perhaps the most referenced and well-known events of antiquity, so we might as well cover them a little more in depth than, say, the Battle of Kadesh, which we talked about last time. In the main body of this series, inevitably, rulers, military action, and politics will be a large portion of the podcast. This is what people of the past wrote about, so it's what we know the most about, and these actions had effects on what happened next. The common people, the arts, and broad societal trends are often, as in this podcast so far, skipped over. In our march through the past 202 decades, however, I aim to give proper time to non-military matters in the common people especially every century when we stop to look around. But back to Greece. The defeat of the Persians led to a Greek golden age and a flowering of Greek philosophy and literature, particularly in Athens. Before we zoom back out, let's add some color to our picture of classical Greece and examine the two most dominant city-states of this age. Athens is famous today for its place as a founder of democracy. But this system of governance didn't spring up overnight. Let's quickly cover the development of democracy in Athens. Looking way, way back to the Bronze Age collapse, Athens seems to have been one of the first cities to have bounced back from the destruction. Unlike the Achaeans of the Peloponnese, the Athenians claimed to have never been conquered by the Dorians. They were pure Ionians. The first recorded ruler of Athens was Draco. Before his time, the laws of Athens were only orally recalled. This afforded the aristocracy unfair and unequal knowledge of the laws, which made it quite easy for them to take advantage or twist the laws to their benefit. Around 622 BC, the citizens of the city had had enough. One of the aristocrats, Draco, was appointed the task of writing a law code. He did the job they had requested, 
But they did not like the results. His law code, the Draconian Constitution, inflicted harsh penalties for many crimes. What if you steal a cabbage? The death penalty. What if you failed to pay a debt to a person of higher class than you? You're now their slave. His name has lent itself to our modern term, Draconian. Next in our list of notable Athenians comes Solon. He began his rule in 594 and promptly repealed the laws of Draco, which again were a bit excessive and hadn't really helped the common people in their conflicts with the aristocracy. The lower classes were still suffering. Before Solon, Athens was ruled by nine archons who were chosen by the Areopagus, a group of ex-archons who met on the hill of Ares next to the Acropolis. Solon created a new constitution which brought the lowest class of Athens, the Thetes, access to an assembly which could now elect leaders, and the Areopagus became merely a body for the protection of the law. Besides establishing the Solonian constitution, Solon also implemented moral and economic reforms, such as the introduction of coinage. The constitution of Solon lasted much longer than Draco's, but that didn't stop ambitious men from attempting to overthrow it. Using populist policies, a man by the name of Pisistratus achieved total power in 561 and became a tyrant. Democracy returned after the expulsion of his son from Attica in 510. The successor, Cleisthenes, in 507 expanded citizenship to all the inhabitants of Attica and further increased the power of the assembly. Rather than the four tribes separated by their degree of property, Cleisthenes split the citizens of Athens into ten tribes based on geography rather than wealth. Besides the assembly, there were a number of other bodies of government. The Council of 500 was charged with enacting decisions made by the assembly. This form of government lasted throughout the Persian Wars and into the Golden Age of Athens. A note should be made that Athens was not alone in its democracy. Several other Greek cities had democracy as well, and several of them had either a democracy established earlier than the Athenians, or a system that was more democratic than the Athenians. This brings up the question, then, of why all the hullabaloo about democracy in Athens, or why all the focus on Athens at all? A few reasons. Athens during the classical period, and at its height, was a huge and affluent city for the ancient world. Estimates of its population vary, but it seems to have had over 120,000 inhabitants. This was a massive city for that time. The city was wealthy, and the arts of sculpture, architecture, playwriting, history, poetry, and philosophy flourished in the city. We'll talk shortly about the source of this wealth, but there's no denying its preeminence among the cities of Greece so it's only fair to give a lot of our focus to this place. The second reason is one of historiography. We talk about Athens the most because the history, philosophy, literature, etc. that has made it to the modern day is primarily written by people from Athens. There were hundreds of other Greek city-states, and dozens of other important ones. Have I even mentioned Corinth yet, or Argos, or Byzantium, or Ephesus? Not really. History isn't just written by the winners. It's written by the writers. Lastly, Athens' association with democracy also comes from its attempts at spreading democracy elsewhere. Like the United States today, Athens liked to label itself as a defender of democracy. To get a taste of the diversity of the Greek world, let's talk about another city-state. You probably haven't heard of this one. It was called Sparta? Am I saying that right? 
In all seriousness, we kind of have to talk about Sparta, given the conflict of Athens and Sparta in the coming Peloponnesian War. Sparta serves as a great foil for Athens. Oligarchy versus democracy, army versus navy, body versus mind. The city-state of Sparta was located along a river in the south of Peloponnese in a valley protected by steep highlands to the north, east, and west. The region was called Lacedaemonia, and the Spartans were often called the Lacedaemonians. Unlike Athens with its acropolis covered in revered ruins, Sparta never had nearly so impressive architecture. The historian Thucydides writes, Suppose the city of Sparta to be deserted, and nothing left but the temples and the ground plan. Distant ages would be very unwilling to believe that the power of the Lacedaemonians was at all equal to their fame. Their city is not built continuously and has no splendid temples or other edifices. It rather resembles a group of villages, like the ancient towns of Hellas, and would therefore make a poor show. Sparta began with the Dorian invasions, which took place during or after the Bronze Age collapse. Tradition describes the invasion as taking place 60 years after the Trojan War. This tribe of Greeks streamed in from the north, conquering the Achaeans who had been living in the Peloponnese before them. Nothing of significance is known of Sparta during the Greek Dark Ages. The city of Sparta appears to have been settled around the year 1000 BC, roughly 200 years after the Bronze Age collapse. The semi-mythical founder of Sparta was Lycurgus. In the 800s BC, Sparta experienced a period of internal strife and turmoil. Lycurgus implemented a number of reforms, all in consultation with the Oracle of Delphi. Sparta was re-established under the values of equality among citizens, military fitness, and austerity, and Lycurgus enacted the Spartan Constitution. The Spartan system of government was anything but the democracy of Athens. It was oligarchy, monarchy, and democracy rolled into one. Spartan society itself was highly stratified, with three clear distinctions. The highest class of Sparta were the Spartiates, who were full citizens. These were a small group of Spartan men who had undergone the brutal military training called the agoge. Upon completion, they were homoios, peers, and gained full legal rights at the age of 20. He would have responsibilities along with those rights. Each evening, he would have to eat together with his peers in a common mess hall and was required, married or not, to sleep in a common barracks each night until he was 30. With few exceptions, one could only be a Spartiate if he was a son of a Spartiate. Sparta was ruled by two hereditary kings of equal power. Rather than being a typical executive monarch, these kings had primarily religious, judicial, and military duties, often acting as generals for the army. Alongside the kings were five democratically elected ephors, who, with the kings, formed a proper executive branch. The ephors served only a single year and could not be re-elected. A further body of government was the gerousia. It consisted of 30 members, the two kings as well as 28 elected Spartiates over the age of 60. These were elected not by ballots, but by the loudness of shouting in support of each candidate. The Jerusia acted as a supreme court and had the power to present motions to the assembly. Finally, there was the Ecclesia, the assembly. Unlike the Athenians, this assembly could only vote yes or no on motions and could in no way debate or change them. 
These offices were limited to the Spartiates, who made up only a small portion of the population. Next, there were the Perioikoi. These were free people, but they did not enjoy the full political rights of the Spartiates. They served as the merchants and business people of Spartan society, and served the critical role of manufacturing the armor of the elite Spartiate soldiers. Base skills such as metallurgy and craftsmanship were beneath the Spartiate warriors. Unlike the Spartiates, who were concentrated in Sparta itself or nearby, the Perioikoi lived in many towns across the southern Peloponnese and had a degree of self-rule over their own towns. They even fought alongside the Spartiates as hoplites, though given the Spartiates' constant devotion to military training, they were likely less elite fighters. Finally, at the bottom of the social pyramid were the Helots. These people made up the majority of the population and served a role in society somewhere between slaves and serfs. They were tied to the land and could be owned by either the Spartiates or the Perioikoi. Always living in fear of a revolt of the Helots, the Spartiates carried out a program of ritual terror and violence against the subjugated masses. Each autumn, the state formally declared war against the Helots, and as part of their training, young men initiated into the Cryptea would spend a year living alone, causing terror among the Helots, stealing to eat, killing the strongest or wealthiest Helot he could find. Not a great situation to live in. One small advantage the Helots had over true slaves is they were allowed to keep their family structures intact and couldn't be bought and sold to another place far from their family. The origins of the Helots brings us back to Spartan history. Early on, the Spartans conquered the whole of Lacedaemonia from the remaining Achaean cities. But it was a small valley, and they soon looked elsewhere for conquest. They first fought with the Argives of Argos to the northeast and the Arcadians to their north. Their defining conflict and big break would come with the conquest of the fertile region to their west, Messenia. The first Messenian War, as I mentioned earlier, lasted a brutal 19 years and saw a total Spartan victory. While much of the population of Messenia fled, those who could not were captured and subjugated as Helots. A second war broke out in the 660s with a Helot revolt supported by the Argives and Arcadians. The Helots attempted to reorganize themselves as a free people and break free from 40 years of Spartan rule. The Spartans were able to eke out a victory and resubjugate the Helots. This revolt entrenched the militarism of the Spartans. They had now seen firsthand that only military power would allow them to survive and rule the Helot masses all around them. In the 550s, Sparta attempted to conquer the Arcadian city of Tegea, but failed, and instead formed an alliance with them. This was the starting point for the establishment of the Peloponnesian League. By 506 BC, nearly the entire peninsula, apart from Argos, had joined the League. On the eve of the war with Persia, Sparta was unequivocally the most prominent Greek city-state, and, as we saw in the Battle of Plataea, the Spartans rather than the Athenians were naturally agreed upon to lead the coalition of city-states. One final note on the difference between Athens and Sparta. Although Athens seems by all accounts discussed so far to have been a more progressive society than Sparta, one area it fell far short of the Spartans was in its treatment of women. In Athens, women were considered property of their husbands and kept at home, unable to participate in sports or politics, and received little education. 
Their main role was as homemakers, weavers, and spinners. An exception, though, was made for the courtesan women who had more freedom of association and business. The most famous of these courtesans was Aspasia, a courtesan who eventually began a relationship with the Archon Pericles. She was famed for her intellect and rhetoric. Aspasia was such a phenomenon in Athens at the time that she is mentioned in both a comedic play of Aristophanes and in a dialogue of Plato. Their references from her are far from glowing. Aspasia was a rare exception to the general state of women in Athens. In Sparta, though, women had a great deal more equality. They were taught to read and write and could participate in sports. For Spartiate women, menial household tasks were generally left to the lower classes. Spartan women had freedom of movement and could own property, inherit property, and engage in business, independent of their husbands. Some of the richest citizens of Sparta were women. It's easy to make overgeneralizations or assumptions from the present into societies of the past. It's easy to jump from, the Athenians were democratic, thus the good guys, and thus must have been champions of women's rights, while the oppressive and militaristic Spartans must have been the more patriarchal. But we must realize that our present is very different from the past, and we must be careful to avoid such assumptions. Now that we've seen the two poles of the polises of classical Greece, we can move on to the Peloponnesian War, which would leave the Golden Age exhausted of its strength and vulnerable to conquest. Following the victory against the Persians, the alliance of Greeks went on a counteroffensive to free the Ionians from Persian rule. The alliance was still led by Sparta and Athens, but it was clear the Athenians were more comfortable projecting power outside the mainland than the Spartans were. When the Ionian cities in Anatolia once again revolted and threw off Persian rule, the Persians could not stop them. In Thrace, the Greek allies freed the narrow peninsula that was the gateway to Anatolia. Next, they continued on to an assault and capture of Byzantium, a city strategically located in the Bosporus, the narrow seaway between Europe and Asia. In later centuries, Byzantium would take a few other names. First, New Rome, then Constantinople, and today, Istanbul. The Spartan commander, Pausanias, who led the armies to a pivotal victory at Plataea just a couple years before, fell under suspicion of treason when he released family members of Xerxes after taking them prisoner in Byzantium. These accusations, along with their diminishing interest in involvement in affairs so far abroad, led Sparta to end its action with the Greek allies. Besides, with Greece and the Ionians liberated, their war goals had been achieved. The Spartan withdrawal passed the leadership of the alliance on to the Athenians. A conference of city-states still committed to readiness and defense was called to meet at the sacred isle of Delos. Here, members formed a common agreement to continue the fight against Persia, keep the same allies and enemies, and contribute either soldiers or resources. The treasury of the League would be kept at Delos, out of fairness to all the members. The Delian League started well by liberating yet more cities from Persian control in the 470s. Soon, however, the dark trajectory of the League became apparent. In 467, the island of Naxos, tired of paying what amounted to a tax or tribute, attempted to withdraw from the League. The Athenians felt differently and attacked and forced Naxos to stay in. Another island state, Thassos, attempted to leave in 465, but they too were forced to stay by the Athenians. The crushing of these rebellions let everyone know who was really in charge. 
In 460, the Egyptians once again revolted against the Persians, and this time they requested aid from the Athenians, who were more than happy to help in harming Persia. For three years, the Delian League besieged the city of Memphis before being destroyed by a Persian army, which reasserted control of Egypt. The Athenians were more successful in Cyprus, though, and their victories there led to Persia accepting a peace with Athens, finally, officially, ending the hostilities between them in 449 BC. Back on the Greek mainland, there was peace for a time, as the alliance between Sparta and Athens still held. But sitting on the sidelines, Sparta grew wary and probably a little jealous of the growing power of Athens. The historian Thucydides writes, The growth of the power of Athens and the alarm which this inspired in Lacedaemon made war inevitable. Tensions had been simmering under the surface for a decade, but in 465 BC, when Thassos revolted to leave the Delian League, Sparta secretly agreed to aid them. When the revolt began, Sparta invaded Attica. Before they could relieve the city of Thassos from the Athenian siege, an earthquake hit the Peloponnese, leading to a massive Helot revolt. The Spartan army was recalled, and the Athenians captured Thassos. This Helot revolt was particularly massive, and the Spartans were failing to put down the revolt. They called in their allies from the Hellenic League days. Several city-states sent soldiers to help, including the Athenians. 4,000 Athenian soldiers arrived, led by Cimon, the Athenian archon who was among a party that was conciliatory toward the Spartans, as opposed to other politicians who were more aggressive. But something about the Athenians' appearance or attitudes insulted the Spartans, and alone of all the city-states giving aid, they were sent back home. Seizing upon this humiliation, Ephialtes, a member of the anti-Spartan party in Athens, led a movement which succeeded in exiling Cimon. Then Ephialtes was elected as Archon. He quickly forged alliances with Thessaly and the Corinth. The First Peloponnesian War began in 460. The advantage shifted several times, but generally went the way of the Athenians. The Athenians were able to complete the long walls, which stretched around Athens and extended to Athens' port, Piraeus. With their naval superiority, they ravaged the coastline of the Peloponnese. In 454, Athens moved to the treasury of the Delian League from Delos to the Acropolis of Athens itself, giving them more control of the finances. But the defeat of the Athenian forces by the Persians in Egypt seemed to reverse their fortunes. But the defeat of the Athenian forces by the Persians in Egypt seemed to reverse their fortunes. By 447, the conquest they had made on land revolted, and the city of Megara returned to the Peloponnesian League. Faced with diminishing success, in 445, the Athenians agreed a truce with the Spartans, the Thirty Years' Peace. The Thirty Years of Peace would be rather short and not restive. The commitment to the truce was tested in 440, when the island of Samos decided they, like many others, didn't really like being part of the Delian League, which more and more seemed like an Athenian empire. The rebels of Samos even called in the Persians for support. The Spartans and other members of the Peloponnesian League debated on assisting Samos, but decided against it. The rebellion was crushed. Cracks began to form in the truce. In 430, a number of proxy conflicts arose between Corinth, its colonies, and Athens. At the same time, Athens sanctioned Megara, back on Sparta's side, blocking them from trading with Athens. If successful, Megara would be crippled. 
In 432, a group of Peloponnesian members came to Sparta, who the other members felt was being lethargic and slow to act against the growing Athenian aggression. In fear of losing their allies, the Spartan assembly voted to declare Athens had broken its truce. The Second Peloponnesian War was on. First, the Ten Years' War, or the Arcadamian War. Second, proxy battles and the Sicilian expedition. Third, the Decalian War, or the Ionian War. In the first phase, the Spartans entered Attica and destroyed the prosperous farmland there. Of particular grief to the Athenians was the destruction of their olive groves. This destruction forced much of the rural inhabitants of Attica into the safety of the long walls of Athens. These forays by the Spartans were short affairs, usually lasting just three weeks. Enough time to march in, destroy, and return home. They couldn't leave the helots unsupervised for long. Athens could do little to stop them. The Athenian army was no match for the Spartans. Pericles the Archon advised against direct confrontation, instead relying on their fleet. In 430, in the densely packed city, plague broke out. It ravaged Athens, killing more than 30,000 citizens and even the great Pericles. Their manpower was depleted, and even mercenaries refused to enter the city. The only advantage was the Spartans left Attica alone for a time, to avoid contact with the plague. With the death of Pericles, the Athenians shifted their policy from defense to offense. Still preeminent at sea, they began to raid the Peloponnesian coast again. Going a step further than raiding, they began to establish forts. The most significant of these was at Pylos, where many runaway helots began heading. Fearing this would lead to another revolt, the Spartans attacked the outpost, but were outmaneuvered by an Athenian force and trapped on the nearby island of Sphacteros. In a shock to the Greek world, the Spartans surrendered and were brought as prisoners to Athens. Once there, the Athenians kindly informed the Spartans that their soldiers would be killed if Sparta entered Attica again. In response, the Spartans raised an army and marched the length of Greece north and attacked an Athenian colony called Amphipolos, which controlled several nearby silver mines which the Athenian treasury relied on. The Spartans captured the city before the Athenians could arrive. Athens tried to recapture the city, but in the fighting, both the Spartan and Athenian generals were killed. A truce was formed, and prisoners were exchanged from both sides. The truce would last six years. Like the last peace, it wasn't a real one. In 418, a coalition of democratic cities in the Peloponnese, led by Argos and supported by Athens, sought to make an anti-Spartan alliance within the Peloponnese. The Argive alliance met the Spartans outside the town of Mantinea, and while they had some initial success, they were decisively defeated. The Spartan reputation, so damaged by the debacle of the captured Spartans just a few years before, was now resurrected. Meanwhile, far to the west, across the Ionian Sea, in Sicily, another Doric city-state was defeating its Ionian neighbors. The powerful Doric city of Syracuse had recently begun to expand and conquered nearby cities and was attempting to rule much of the east of the island. The small Greek cities nearby had allied a while before with Athens, their Ionian brother, for protection. So, when the threat of Syracuse grew, they sent for aid from Athens, who couldn't resist the opportunity. Persuaded by the charismatic Alcibiades, the assembly voted to approve the expedition. 100 ships and 5,000 hoplites would be led by Alcibiades, Nicias, a critic of the expedition, and Lamachus, a veteran soldier. 
The three disagreed on strategy, but eventually decided on sailing to Sicily, gathering allies and support, and hopefully inspiring the cities recently annexed by Syracuse to rebel and throw off their rule. All three of these expectations fell far short. They found a few allies, but the city that had initially requested aid didn't actually have the money they had said they would pay Athens to intervene, and the rebellions they had looked for didn't come. Worse, a ship soon arrived from home announcing that Alcibiades was under arrest for profaning a religious ritual. He was brought on board, and the fleet was down to two commanders. The story of Alcibiades is wild. He not only escaped his captors on the way home, but he slipped over to the Spartans, gave them Athenian secrets, excelled at the simple military life of the soldiers there, and seemed to fit right in. After rising in favor and assisting the Spartans greatly in their struggle with Athens, a rumor began to spread that the king's newest son was actually Alcibiades' son. Or perhaps some of the Spartans were growing jealous of this outsider's success. In 412, he received a tip that orders had been placed to kill him. Once again, he slipped out of trouble. This time, though, short of allies, he made it to the Persian Empire, where he stayed for about a year. We'll meet up with him again soon, but let's return to the floundering Sicilian expedition. In the first battle with the Syracusans, the Athenian army was successful at scattering them, but the Syracusan cavalry was able to prevent a total rout, and no major outcome resulted. Nicias, always reluctant to be involved, didn't press the advantage in 415. Winter set in, giving the leaders of Syracuse a chance to gather their own allies. Who do you call when you're a Dorian city at war with Athens? Huh? Oh, right, Sparta. In the meantime, the Athenians built a wall near Syracuse, cutting it off by land. The Athenian fleet blocked the port. Soon after the encirclement, a Spartan general landed on Sicily with a small force. They were able to build a counter wall, and the Syracusans followed their lead, building their own wall, nullifying the effects of the Athenians' wall. At this point, Nicias wrote home, saying he believed it wouldn't be possible to take the city. He hoped he would be relieved of the command. Instead, reinforcements arrived. Athens was doubling down. The new reinforcements attempted a night attack on the counter wall, but the Spartans' Boeotian allies defeated them, and many of the Athenians fell from the cliffs to their death. Things weren't going better for the original Athenian force either. With their camp near a marsh, many, including Nicias, had become sick. The leaders of the new force reluctantly agreed with Nicias' assessment of the situation. Preparations were made to head home. Before they left, though, a lunar eclipse took place, and Nicias, being especially superstitious, went to a priest to seek the meaning of the omen. The priest informed Nicias that he should wait 27 days before leaving Sicily. The Syracusans took advantage of this. Their slightly smaller navy attacked the Athenian navy in the harbor and pushed many of the ships to shore where the Spartans were waiting. They captured 18 of the ships before Athens' army was able to push them away. The Syracusans used this momentum to trap the Athenian navy within the harbor. A few days later, a larger naval battle took place for control of the harbor. The waters were packed with the creaking wooden ships, and there was little room to maneuver. Ships slammed into each other throughout the day. Slowly, the Syracusans pushed the invaders toward the beach, and the Athenians jumped ashore and fled to their camp. The generals tried to get their men to reboard the boats and break through to leave the miserable campaign and return home, but the soldiers insisted on retreating by land instead. Four days later, the 40,000 survivors left their camp, their wounded, and their dead behind, and fled. 
They defeated a small force that blocked their road south, but were continually harassed by cavalry. One commander was split off, and he and his 6,000 men were killed. Just afterward, the main body became disorganized when they came to a stream. The soldiers ran to get water, trampling each other. On the other side of the river, the Syracusans were waiting for them. Nearly all of the Athenians were slaughtered. Nicias surrendered to the Spartan general. The expedition had been an utter waste and a failure. Back at home, the situation was already dire, and the citizens of Athens at first refused to believe the news. But when more testimonies arrived, there was panic in the city. See, the Spartans had not been idle while the Athenians were away with their military. Taking the advice of Alcibiades, they had built a fort at Decalea, a site north of Athens that effectively cut off Attica from land. On a clear day, the Athenian citizens could see the fort on the horizon. So imagine their fear when they learned their army had been destroyed. Attica seemed open for invasion. With Athens essentially blockaded from land, all supplies had to come in by sea to feed the city swollen with refugees. This was expensive, and worse, the Spartans had freed 20,000 slaves from an Athenian silver mine. No silver, no food. Athens demanded ever more tribute from its subject allies, which further raised tension with the, with the already malcontent cities. Many of the Ionian cities left the Athenian Empire. The end seemed at hand for Athens, but the Spartans, Corinthians, and Syracusans were slow in seizing the moment. If they had struck then, they could have ended the war. Instead, Athens was allowed to limp on for several more years. Looking around at the state of their city, the Athenian aristocrats took matters into their own hands. In 411 BC, 400 oligarchs seized power in a coup, tired of the disastrous reign of the democrats in the past few years. The oligarchs were interested in peace with Sparta, but the remnants of the Athenian fleet stationed at Samos did not recognize the new government, and they called in Alcibiades and appointed him as their leader. The sailors wanted to return home and reestablish democracy, but Alcibiades convinced them to turn their attention on their enemies. In 410, they won a battle over the Spartan navy, which kept the Athenian empire alive. The success of the Athenian navy led to a democratic revolt, which succeeded in toppling the oligarchs just two years after they had taken power. Just when things looked darkest for Athens, Alcibiades had returned and given them new hope. The reality of this situation was still dark for Athens, though. Despite a string of victories at sea, the Spartans still held Decalea. The Athenian army was never coming back from Sicily, and now a new player entered the game against the Athenians. For several years, the Persian ruler, Darius II, had been concerned with Athens' growing power in the Aegean. The catastrophes it had faced in 413 encouraged him. But with Athens seeming to be re-establishing its power, Darius reached out to Sparta. In 408, he sent his son, Cyrus the Younger, who met the Spartan general Lysander. The two men shared a goal of destroying Athens and ascending to preeminence in their own spheres. Cyrus desired to be the next ruler of Persia. Lysander wanted to control all of Greece. So Cyrus gave the Spartans all of the revenue of Anatolia, and Cyrus secured Sparta's military support. Flush with cash from Persia, the Spartans were able to increase the pay for rowers, and they attracted many who switched away from the Athenians. Sparta suddenly had a respectable navy. In 406 BC, led by Lysander, the Spartan navy defeated Alcibiades' forces at Notium. Always fickle, the assembly in Athens punished Alcibiades for the defeat by not re-electing him. 
he would never serve Athens again. Another naval battle soon occurred at Argonusae, where the Athenians had the upper hand, but because of bad weather, they were unable to save their stranded crews or finish off the Spartan fleet. Even though they had won, the six naval generals were put on trial for these failures, and in the feverish frenzy of democracy, all of them were executed. Athens would have to fight without its experienced generals and with a demoralized navy. Lysander seized upon this and sailed to the Dardanelles, where Athens got much of its grain. The Athenians couldn't sit by while the Spartans destroyed their last food source, so they pursued. The Battle of Igospotami, which followed, was a disaster for Athens. Of their 180 ships, 168 were destroyed. The 12 which survived escaped to Cyprus, not daring to return home to face execution from the assembly. Athens now faced starvation. Decalea cut off supplies by land, and no ships could bring in food by sea. Some wanted to hold out, but for what? They had no army, no navy, and no strong allies. They were finished. In March of 404 BC, Athens surrendered to Sparta. The Spartans placed 30 oligarchs in charge of Athens, tore down its long walls protecting the city, and absorbed Athens' empire into its own. The Peloponnesian Wars had been devastating to Greece, and the region of Attica in particular. The once fertile lands had been destroyed, and much of the country was in poverty. The Spartans had control now, and Athens was humbled. It would recover somewhat, but never again would it reach the same heights. As a brief interlude, Cyrus the Younger, son of Darius II, called upon the aid of the Spartans to gain the throne of Persia over his brother Artaxerxes. 10,000 Greek mercenaries were gathered and marched with Cyrus across Anatolia and into Mesopotamia. The historian Xenophon accompanied this expedition personally and records their journey. The 10,000 fought and won a battle against Artaxerxes' forces at Babylon, but realized only afterward that their patron, Cyrus, had been killed. Now, deep in enemy territory, without food, support, or pay, the 10,000 elected leaders and marched and fought their way north, up the Tigris River, into Armenia, and then traveled along the Black Sea coast to return to Greek lands, returning in 399 BC. Already cracks were forming in Spartan control over Greece. While all of Athens' revenue now flowed to Sparta, its allies, notably Corinth and Thebes, noticed they received none of the spoils. Chafing under Spartan rule, its old allies, along with Athens, refused to take part in campaigns in Ionia. In 395, these cities, Athens, Corinth, Thebes, and Argos, began what is called the Corinthian War against Sparta. At first, the Spartans won several land battles, but their navy was destroyed in the Battle of Cnidus by the Persians, who had joined the war against Sparta, always keen to prevent any great power from forming in Greece. This loss of Sparta's navy encouraged the Athenians to capture several islands they had controlled in the Delian League. Reversing course again, the Persians flipped their support back to the Spartans, a more distant threat than the Athenians. With the loss of Persian support, the Allies sought peace with Sparta in 387. In what many of the Greeks felt was a betrayal of over a hundred years of fighting, the treaty agreed between Sparta and Persia also handed over the cities of Ionia and Cyprus back to Persian control. This peace was guaranteed by the Persians, who ruled that no more leagues could be formed in Greece, and that the Spartans would enforce this. The Thebans lost the most in this agreement, with their Boeotian League being disbanded and their cities garrisoned with Spartan soldiers. 
The rulers of Thebes at the time, Epaminondas and Pelopidas, weren't ready to cede their growing power. Under their rule, the army took a policy of aggression and reorganized its heavy infantry. The Theban soldiers began to use longer spears and fight in a wedge-shaped formation rather than the traditional straight line of the hoplites. The Theban sacred band was also established. An elite group of around 300 men each paired with his male lover. These reforms and the sacred band would prove crucial in Thebes' rise. In 378, the Thebans had thrown out their Spartan garrison and openly began talks of re-establishing their rule over their home region of Boeotia, which is just north of Attica. The first sign of the coming Theban dominance came in 375, when a smaller Theban force defeated a larger Spartan force in battle. This is the first time a Spartan force had been defeated by a less numerous opponent. In 373, Thebes crushed the town of Plataea, Athens' only ally in the region of Boeotia. Athens and Thebes were ostensibly allies, but that did little to slow the Theban consolidation of power. Two years later, when there was an attempt to re-establish the peace of 387 BC, the Thebans swore not only for themselves, but for all the Boeotians. Sparta disallowed this and used the reformation of the Boeotian League as a pretext to reassert their power over Thebes. The outcome would be quite the reverse. Instead of cementing Spartan hegemony, the Battle of Leuctra would end it. At Leuctra, the two armies lined up facing each other, but Epaminondas, awaiting his opportunity, took the chance to tweak the traditional lines of battle. Normally, the strongest, most experienced soldiers fought on the right wing of each line. Sparta's elite hoplites were on their right. But Epaminondas lined his soldiers up the opposite way, with his elite Theban sacred band on the left side of his line, directly across from the elite Spartan warriors. The Theban left was lined up 50 men deep, much more than the 12 lines of the Spartans. The battle began and both sides advanced. By the time the Spartans realized the switch, it was too late. The greater mass of the Thebans steamrolled the Spartan right and quickly inflicted heavy casualties upon the cream of Sparta's elite hoplites. Of the 700 Spartiates in battle, 400 were slain at Leuctra. Among the dead was one of the Spartan kings. In one battle, Spartan hegemony was over, and Theban hegemony was here. Not content to injure the Spartans, the next year the Thebans under Epaminondas invaded the Peloponnese and proclaimed themselves liberators, aiding the Mantineans and Tegeans in the creation of an anti-Spartan Arcadian League. The Theban forces crossed the mountains and invaded Laconia. The shattered Spartans could only defend their city. The Thebans marched freely throughout the countryside, ravaging the land and freeing the Perioikoi from allegiance to Sparta. Next, they crossed west into Messenia, the homeland of the Helots. Epaminondas freed all the Helots he could find and rebuilt the old city of Messene there and fortified it. Besides losing a third of their territory and half their Helots, the Spartans now had two new enemies near at home. At the same time as Sparta's defeat, Athens was quietly beginning to re-establish its maritime empire. They had learned a few lessons from the past, and instead of enacting tribute, now collected funds in a much more egalitarian and as-needed basis. Even without the threat of Sparta, and with a hashtag newer, friendlier league, Athens had a problem in Thebes. The Thebans under Epaminondas had built their own fleet and were attempting to persuade Athens' allies to join the Boeotian League. They were able to peel away Athens' important allies of Byzantion, Chalcedon, and Cyzicus. 
Sparta and Athens now found themselves united for the moment against Thebes. They sent ambassadors to Persia asking for a new peace to be guaranteed, one that would re-splinter the Boeotian League. But Pelopidas also went and argued that a Theban rule of Greece was preferable to either the Athenians or Spartans. The Persians were convinced, so Thebes' two rivals were forced to fend for themselves. The Thebans expanded their power not only south towards Athens and Sparta, but also north into the plains of Thessaly. In these northern excursions, a young man named Philip from Macedonia was brought to Thebes as a hostage, where he received a military education from Epaminondas. The young man returned home in 364 BC. In 362, the Thebans invaded the Peloponnese again, this time to subdue Mantinea, with whom they had been allied, but who was now looking to return to Sparta's sphere. In this battle, nearly all of Greece was represented. On one side were Thebes, the Thessalians, the Boeotians, the Arcadians, and Argos. On the other were Sparta, Athens, Elis, and Mantinea. This battle of Mantinea was the largest hoplite battle in Greek history. The Theban alliance caught their enemies off guard and unprepared to fight. Again, the Theban left wing crashed into the Spartan right and broke them, putting them to flight. But at the critical moment, Epaminondas was hit with a javelin and was mortally wounded. Dying, he bid his army to seek peace. The broken Spartans and Athenians fled the battlefield unpursued. This new round of violence had brought in another generation to the cycle of self-destruction that had plagued the Greeks for a century. It was almost as if contact with the Persian world in 490 BC had unleashed some contagion, some sickness of spirit upon the Hellenes. War after war after war, in a cycle of never-ending violence with no side being able to gain or hold hegemony for long. Sparta now had a serious manpower problem, with much of its aristocracy dead on the battlefield over the past decade. Athens faced a war with its former allies, Byzantium, Chios, Rhodes, and Kos. And now that Thebes had lost its great leader, it too was mortal. Yet another small war took place, this one between Phocis and Thebes, which drew in other powers. Finally, the Macedonians, a Greek kingdom on the northern periphery of the Greek world, was called in to aid Thebes. Their king, Philip of Macedon, was able to establish a peace and put Greece on notice of the growing power of the Macedonians. Let's properly introduce these Macedonians. While today we say Macedonia when describing the area, they would have said Macedonia. For much of the past couple centuries of our story, Macedonia had been a small Greek kingdom on the periphery of the greater Greek world, a back country. During the height of Persian power in the Aegean, Macedonia had been a vassal of the empire. In 512, Macedonia was one of a number of peoples in Thrace and northern Greece incorporated into the empire by Darius I in an excursion to the Danube River to subdue the Scythians. Being so far from the core of the empire meant Persian rule was usually light. When the Ionian Revolt was put down, though, by the Persians in 492, the Persian general Mardonius reinforced Persian rule over Macedonia. During the Peloponnesian Wars, Macedonia sided with the Spartans against Athens. Their position was always compromised by the threat of invasion of Thracians from their northeast and Illyrians from their northwest, both non-Greek barbarians. In 370, the Macedonian king Alexander, no, not that Alexander, invaded Thessaly and captured the city of Larissa. The Thessalians sought and received help from Thebes, who recaptured Larissa. 
In the peace agreement, the king's brother, Philip II, was taken as hostage to Thebes. As we mentioned, Philip was witness to the military transformations and successes of the Thebans while he was captive there. In 359, Philip's other brother, Peridicus, was king when he and the Macedonians' army suffered a major defeat by the Illyrians. The king was killed. Now, at the age of 24, Philip became king of Macedonia. Immediately upon ascending, he spent his energy on transforming the army of the kingdom. He introduced a new weapon for his soldiers, the sarissa, a six-meter-long pike. He made his phalanx into a row of first 10 by 10 and then later 16 by 16 soldiers. The spears of the first five rows stuck out past the first men in the formation. The later rows held their spears up at 45 degree to 90 degree angles to deflect arrows and other projectiles. These new pikemen still did have a small shield and a sword, but their total weight of armor was 10 pounds lighter than the traditional hoplite soldiers. This phalanx would crash into the enemy and with their long spears were able to hold the enemy hoplites in place while the cavalry charged in to strike a blow from the side. The elite Macedonian cavalry were called the Companions. Working in concert with the redesigned phalanx, they were essential to the combined arms tactics of the Macedonians under Philip and his son. Philip took several wives to secure alliances with his neighbors. The most auspicious of these was Olympias. She was from Epirus, an area in the northwest corner of Greece and in Albania. If the Macedonians were at the edge of the Greek world, Epirus at this time seemed nearly foreign. This marriage provided an alliance with Epirus, and their union soon gave Philip a son, Alexander III. Yes, that one. With Athens busy fighting its former allies, Macedonia captured the Athenian colony of Amphipolos and a few other cities nearby. In that war between Phocis and Thebes, Philip was able to expand his rule south into Thessaly, the region bordering Boeotia in the north. For the next decade, Philip slowly expanded his power in the south and made larger conquests in the north of Greece and in Thrace. Even at this early stage, Philip and the Macedonians were dreaming of an invasion of the Persians across the Aegean. He supported several satrapies and mercenaries in rebelling against central Persian control. His expansion didn't go unnoticed by the older powers of Greece. In 340, Philip unsuccessfully tried to capture Perinthus in Byzantion, which would have given him a launching pad into Persian Anatolia. These attacks were a step too far and led to war with Athens. Fearing Philip's growing power, an anti-Macedonian alliance formed consisting of Athens, Thebes, Corinth, and Megara. Philip led an army with the help of Thessaly, Arcadia, and Argos, who were always the contrarians. The Macedonian-led army marched south into Boeotia on its way to Thebes and Athens. The Athenian-Theban alliance stood, blocking their path, and the Battle of Chironia began. Details of the battle are scarce. But in a long, grinding ordeal, the Macedonians slowly began to win. Decisive in the battle was the charge of Alexander, leading the companion cavalry. Or maybe he led a portion of the phalanx. Either way, Alexander's charge turned the battle from a stalemate to a rout. More than a thousand Athenians were killed, and two thousand taken prisoner. Thebes suffered similar numbers of casualties, but among them was every one of the elite Theban sacred band. The battle was decisive. No army now stood in Philip's way in a conquest of all of southern Greece. In Corinth and in Athens, the citizens hastily reinforced their walls, preparing to be besieged. But Philip had other plans, plans for leniency and clemency. 
He wanted a stable Greece that could support his dream of a Persian invasion. Killing more potential soldiers or allies who could supply his campaign was not fitting his designs. That didn't mean there were no consequences to the defeat. Thebes was forced to expel its current leaders, and new pro-Macedonian rulers were installed. They were forced to pay large sums to ransom their captives and to bury their dead. Athens, though, was treated very leniently. Its captives were released without payment. The reason for the easy treatment which Philip showed Athens isn't known, but Histrion's best guess is that he hoped to build favor with the city and use its navy for his invasion of Persia. To ward off the Spartans from seizing on the weakened state of their neighbors, Philip invited them to negotiate, and when Sparta refused, he brought in his army and ravaged the land around the city, but left Sparta itself untouched. In 337, he and his army camped outside Corinth and began the task of creating a League of City-States. The result was the League of Corinth. The agreement brought all its members into alliance with each other and freedom from outside meddling in each member's own internal affairs. All the major city-states of Greece joined the League, with the notable exception of Sparta. Even without the weakened Lacedaemonians, peace in Greece was secured. The League was not just concerned with internal matters, though. At Philip's request, the League declared war on Persia and voted Philip as Stratigos. Philip's dream was becoming a reality. In 336, an advanced force of the Macedonian army was sent to Persia, with Philip planning on following with his full army later in the year. When they heard of the arrival of Philip's army on their side of the Aegean, many Greek cities under Persian rule revolted. It had been over 150 years since the Ionian Revolt, which prompted the Persian invasion of Greece, and now, finally someone was coming to finish the task of freeing their Ionian brothers. Their hopes were misplaced, but only slightly. They would have to wait a few more years. Before he could join his army and liberate Anatolia from the Persians, Philip suddenly died. Back in the Macedonian capital of Aigai, Philip had been hosting the king of Epirus to celebrate his marriage to Cleopatra, no, not that one, who was Philip and Olympias's daughter. As Philip entered the theater, he distanced himself from his bodyguards in order to appear approachable to his guests. This plan worked really well. Philip was so approachable that one of his seven bodyguards, Pausanias, quickly approached Philip, pulled out a dagger, and stabbed him in the ribs. The bodyguard turned assassin fled, pursued by three of the other bodyguards. During the chase, the assassin's horse tripped on the vine and threw its rider to the ground. Catching up to the fallen man, the other bodyguards killed him. So, why was Philip killed? A few theories. First, the only contemporary account we have is from Aristotle, who simply says Pausanias killed Philip because he was offended by Philip's uncle-in-law, Attalus. Not a lot of information there. Later sources fill in, or embellish, some detail. One account is that Pausanias was one of Philip's lovers, but Philip had recently ditched Pausanias for a younger man. The old Pausanias had taunted the younger man, causing him to needlessly throw away his life in battle. This younger man's friend was Attalus, who blamed Pausanias for the youth's death. In revenge, Attalus got Pausanias drunk and then raped him. Pausanias had complained to Philip, but according to this account, Philip just brushed him off. The king was in a bind. He could not antagonize Attalus, as he was due to be the leader of the invasion of Persia, and Attalus was his uncle-in-law. To mollify Pausanias, Philip had made him a member of his bodyguard. Pausanias' anger then shifted from Attalus to Philip when he realized the king would not bring him justice. So he had killed the king. 
Now, that's a crazy story, a more complicated and sinister web of court politics than even Game of Thrones presents. Unfortunately, we don't know if it's true. Other later sources have put the blame on one of Philip's wives, Olympias. But what motive could the queen have had? She was just one of Philip's wives and had become increasingly estranged. Philip recently had failed to definitively set Alexander, Olympias' son, as his heir. Alexander had shown success on the battlefield, but Philip had several other children too. Perhaps Olympias had bribed an assassin to kill Philip before he could change his inheritance. Maybe both the Olympias story and the Pausanias story are true. Either way, it's certainly suspicious that the other bodyguards who caught the assassin killed him rather than apprehending him and taking him in for some advanced interrogation. I'd like to offer a third theory, one that doesn't really have backing in the sources as far as I'm aware. It seems like Persia would have a pretty good motive to kill Philip. It's not hard to imagine them paying for an assassination. Their motive was clear. No Philip, no invasion of Persia. Just a little speculation. If it really was the Persians, though, they made a mistake. Instead of just losing Ionia or Anatolia, as they might have under Philip, under his son Alexander, their entire empire would be toppled. Before that could happen, though, the advanced force of Macedonians already in Anatolia, demoralized by the death of their dear leader, were soundly defeated by the Persians. At the age of 20, Philip's son by Olympias, Alexander III, was hailed as king by the army immediately after his father's assassination. The power his father had built wasn't just going to fall into Alexander's lap without a struggle, though. He and his mother understood this. Quickly and ruthlessly, they eliminated rivals and potential rivals within Macedonia and did not exclude relatives from this purge. Without Alexander's knowledge, Olympias was said to have had her own daughter killed. There was no room for a challenge to Alexander's rule. Outside the kingdom, Thessaly, Thebes, and Athens saw this as a perfect time to rid themselves of the Macedonians. They wrongly assumed there was no way Philip's successor could be as successful or brilliant as him. So, after consolidating power at home, Alexander marched south with his army. He quickly dealt with the Thessalians, and having surrendered, he added their cavalry to his army. As he continued south, Athens got cold feet and asked for peace. Alexander made for Corinth to retake his father's place as the head of the League of Corinth. While there in Corinth, Alexander famously met the beatnik-slash-ascetic philosopher Diogenes. The philosopher had gained a reputation across the Greek world for his wit and disregard for societal norms. Alexander was a big fan. Finding the old philosopher on the street, sitting in his upturned tub in which he lived, the king of Macedon asked Diogenes if he wanted anything. Yes, replied Diogenes. Stand a little to the side. You're blocking the sun. Alexander was delighted by this answer and was reported to have said, If I were not Alexander, I would like to be Diogenes. With Greece united under Alexander's rule, he traveled back north to secure his frontier with the Thracians and Illyrians before he could begin his invasion of Persia. While he was away far in the north, Thebes and Athens rebelled again from Macedonian rule. Alexander immediately headed south. The approach of the Macedonian army was enough to subdue many of the rebels, but Thebes decided to fight. In the battle outside the city, Alexander brutally crushed Thebes. Merely killing the rebels was not enough. He razed the city and divided its territory among the other Boeotian cities. Thebes was no more. Athens, hearing of the total destruction, begged forgiveness. This time, Alexander showed clemency. The time was ripe for the invasion of Persia. 
In 334 BC, Alexander crossed the Hellespont from Greece to Asia Minor with 48,000 Greek and Macedonian soldiers and 6,000 cavalry. Unlike his father, Alexander's goal was not only to free the Ionians and perhaps control Anatolia. No, his goal was to conquer the entire Persian Empire. In just three pitched battles, Alexander would bring the great Achaemenid Persian Empire to its knees. For the moment, though, the Persian emperor, Darius III, did not take the young man seriously. As Alexander moved deeper into Anatolia, though, Darius commanded the five satrapies of Anatolia to pool their militaries together and crush the insolent invader. The two sides met in May of 334 in the Battle of the Granicus River. They lined up opposite each other, with the shallow river running between them. As the day was getting late, some advised camping for the night, but Alexander, going against all wisdom, ordered an immediate attack across the river. In a closely matched battle, Alexander's personal charges, alongside his companion cavalry, were able to clear space for his phalanx to slowly cross the river and push into the Persian infantry. Unable to stand against the phalanx, the Persian reserves were called in. A mercenary unit of 5,000 elite Greek infantry their discipline slowed the phalanx, but their line was interspersed with the lighter Persian infantry. When the Macedonian cavalry had beaten away the remnants of the Persian cavalry, they swept in from the flank. The light Persian infantry then fled, leaving the mercenaries to fight alone until they were slaughtered or taken as prisoners. The Macedonians had recklessly attacked and won a masterful victory. The issue, though, was that much of the Persian army had escaped. The Macedonians had been unable to pursue, being held up by those mercenaries. Still, the psychological effect of the battle was significant. As the army continued into Anatolia, city after city defected to Alexander. As the army marched towards Sardis, the satrap, the ruler of the province, surrendered without a fight. Most of the Ionian cities happily joined, but a few Greek cities who were loyal to Persia, such as Halicarnassus, had to be besieged. The Persian navy was based here and at Miletus, and were constantly harassing Alexander's supply lines, looking for a battle. Capturing these cities would remove friendly ports and force the navy to stand down. The Macedonians put both cities to siege and secured them without much trouble by the autumn of the year. Against all Persian expectations, the western coast of Anatolia had been suddenly snatched from their hands. Alexander and his Macedonian army marched inland through Cappadocia before turning south towards Syria. The Battle of Granicus and the ensuing campaign of Alexander across Anatolia had been a wake-up call for Darius III. He gathered an army and personally led it to stop the invader. An army led by the Persian king had never before lost a battle. In the Battle of Issus, the two sides met not far from the future city of Antioch. The armies lined up in almost a mirror image of the Battle of Granicus. This time, though, the Persians had a clear advantage in numbers, with more than twice as many troops as the Hellenic army. Alexander had chosen his spot specifically to help nullify the Persian advantages. On the narrow plain between the hills on the right and the sea on the left, he could prevent the enemy from fully spreading out their forces. And the cramped battlefield prevented the more numerous Persian cavalry from having as much room to maneuver. The battle began, and this time, the Persian cavalry made the first move, charging across the river into the Macedonian cavalry on the left side. 
the Macedonian infantry began their march forward, but were slowed by both the stream and by the thousands of arrows bombarding them. On the right, Alexander and his elite companion cavalry met the remainder of the Persian cavalry, protecting their other side. Again, the battle started poorly for the Macedonians. The main force of the Persian cavalry on the left wing was winning against the Macedonian cavalry beside the sea. In the middle, the Macedonians, even in their phalanx, were being slowly pushed back towards the river. Fortune, or maybe strategy, broke for the Macedonians when Alexander's cavalry broke through the Persian cavalry beside the hill on the right side. This freed them up, and now they could swing around and, just like in the Battle of Granicus, smash into the back of the Persian infantry. The infantry was now nearly surrounded. Most broke and ran. Despite their successes on their side of the battle, when the Persian cavalry on the left beside the sea saw their comrades and general flee, they turned and followed. This time, the casualties were significant for the Persians, with over 20,000 dead. Worse for the Persians, Alexander's army captured Darius's wife, daughter, and mother. While he treated them courteously, this was of course a further blow to Darius. For the first time, the Persian king began to fear for his empire and for his life. Following the battle, he wrote a letter to Alexander, offering a huge ransom to retrieve their prisoners and giving the Macedonians half his empire, if only there could be peace. Alexander's reply was curt. It was addressed, King Alexander, to Darius. In the letter, Alexander blamed Darius for his father's assassination, and also revealed, for the first time, his goal was to capture all of Asia and conquer Persia itself. With the Persians on the run, Alexander was free to move his army throughout Syria and the Levant. He first moved south, and in a several-month siege, captured the Phoenician city of Tyre. Tyre was on an island, and seemed safe from the Macedonians, who lacked a navy. But Alexander simply ordered a causeway be built, connecting the island to the mainland. Half the city was destroyed in the siege, but by July of 332, Tyre was his. Yet another major port for the Persian navy had been neutralized. They moved farther south, with their sights set on Egypt. In the southern Levant, the Egyptians had a fortress at Gaza. The Macedonians made short work of this stronghold too, and with this obstacle removed, their path to the land of the pharaohs was open. When Alexander and his army arrived in the land beside the Nile in 332, their approach was said to have been more of a triumphal entry than a conquering invasion. The Egyptians saw the Macedonians as liberators. They had tried to throw off their Persian rulers several times in the past couple centuries. Alexander made sure to curry favor wherever he went. Unlike the Persians, he showed a great deal of deference to the native religion. He ordered the repair of the temples, which had been neglected under the Persians, and visited the oasis of Siwa, where he was declared by the oracle to be the son of the Egyptian god, Ammon. In the syncretous spirit of Greek religion, Ammon was equated as a form of the god Zeus. In Memphis, Alexander was crowned as Pharaoh. In his brief stay, Alexander was busy with administration. He restructured the tax to make it in line with Greek taxation, and he founded the city of Alexandria on the Mediterranean, signaling that the new Egypt would be outward-looking. In essence, the Egyptians had placed In essence, the Egyptians had replaced one foreign ruler for another, but at least this one showed them a little respect. The Macedonians didn't stay long. In 331, Alexander and his army left through the Sinai Peninsula and made their way toward the heart of Persia. They moved back north through the Levant, keeping west of the Syrian desert. 
When they reached the upper reaches of the Euphrates, they crossed the river in what is now Kurdistan. They continued east until they had crossed the Tigris, and then turned and began their march southeast toward Babylon, Susa, and Persepolis. With the Macedonian python tightening its grip on Persia, Darius knew this was the moment. He had to stop Alexander now. Gathering a large force of up to 120,000 soldiers, he left Babylon and headed north to meet the Macedonian army. Unlike the last two battles between the Persians and the Macedonians, the Persian king took the initiative and chose a battlefield to his advantage. Near the town of Gagamela, Darius moved his army onto a wide plain. The space afforded by the plain allowed his massive army to spread out and would allow his cavalry to maneuver. Alexander caught wind of the Persian army nearby when a few scouts were captured. Immediately, Alexander moved his army east towards Darius. They captured a hill overlooking the plain, which gave them a defensible site to rest and prepare for battle. They spent the night there in the comfort of their camp. The Persians, meanwhile, spent the night in battle formation in case of a night attack by their enemies. When the sun rose on the 1st of October, 331, the Hellenic army moved down from the hill and faced the Persians. Like the previous battles, each side had its cavalry on both flanks, with the Persians having a large advantage in numbers. The battle began with a Persian cavalry charge, meeting the Macedonian cavalry. Alexander, with his elite companion cavalry, was on the right flank again. They successfully held off the charge and were winning their flank. On the opposite side, the Macedonian cavalry was suffering heavier losses, but had not broken. The Persians had 200 scythe chariots, which sprinted headlong into the Hellenic center, but their discipline allowed them to make lanes for the chariots to pass through while they bombarded them with javelins, rendering them mostly ineffective. By now, the cavalry flanks on each side had drifted away from the Macedonian infantry in the center. Darius saw this and sent his heavy infantry, made up of the Persian immortals and some Greek mercenaries, forward into the opposite center. But this was bait. As the heavy infantry marched forward, the Persian king was left alone with just his light infantry and personal guard around him. Alexander seized his chance and charged from the right flank. He ignored the Persian heavy infantry that approached his army's center line, and instead, his companion cavalry plowed into Darius's bodyguards. In serious personal danger, Darius, just as he had done two years before, abandoned his army and fled the battlefield. With their king gone, the remaining Persian forces were overwhelmed and destroyed. More than 40,000 dead, compared to around 1,000 on the Greek side. The Battle of Granicus had given Alexander room to liberate Anatolia. The Battle of Issus had opened up Phoenicia and Egypt, and this third battle, the Battle of Gagamela, had finally broken the Persian army for good. Darius had escaped alive, but wouldn't make any further trouble for Alexander. Darius's plan now was to gather another army. Although the west of his empire had fallen out of his hands, he still had a huge eastern half from which to gather another army. But it wasn't to be. With the king on the run, many of the other satrapies or provinces surrendered to Alexander. The Macedonians now moved south into Mesopotamia and occupied Babylon. Susa surrendered next, and its huge treasury fell into Alexander's hands. Finally, Alexander and his army arrived at the heart of Persia, Persepolis. Here he allowed his army to loot and ransack the Persian capital for days. 
a fire began which destroyed much of the city, including the palace of Xerxes, which was taken as a symbol of revenge for Xerxes' role in the Persian invasion of Greece a century and a half earlier. Symbolically, at least, the Greeks had repaid Persia for her sins. Alexander now was hegemon of Greece, pharaoh of Egypt, and the Persian king of kings. He had achieved the unimaginable. You would think the story of his military conquests would stop here. Instead, Alexander remained restless and continued to campaign for several more years. First, hearing word that Darius had escaped into Central Asia, Alexander pursued. Before the Macedonians could catch up to him, though, the Persian general, Bessus, who had fought in the Battle of Gagamela and was the satrap of Bactria, found Darius first. As Alexander neared, Bessus stabbed Darius and declared himself the rightful king of Persia. He fled before Alexander arrived. Reaching the slain king, Alexander took Darius's body, gave him a royal funeral, and laid him beside his predecessors in Persepolis. Bessus made his way to his home province of Bactria and began to gather a force from here and Parthia and Sogdiana. These regions were strange and remote for the Greeks. They lay far beyond the general knowledge of the Greek world up to this point. The area was very wealthy, though, with a string of cities lying along the Silk Road, facilitating trade between the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and China. The Macedonian army followed Alexander for a year as he wound his way through regions which are now parts of northern Iran, Afghanistan, and Turkmenistan. In 329, Bessus was betrayed and killed by a Sogdian to gain favor with Alexander. But up here, among the Hindu Kush and upon the flatlands of Bactria, the Macedonians faced other threats. With Persian control collapsing, Scythian nomads had begun encroaching from the Eurasian steppe. Now the ruler of these lands, Alexander, had to stop them, and at the Battle of Jaxartes in 329, he did just that. Nearby, he founded the city of Alexandria Escate, Alexandria the Farthest. In 328, he secured control over Sogdiana, the most northern and remote province of the Persian Empire. Defeating its rebel general and falling for his daughter, Roxana, he soon married her. While his troops were still loyal, cracks began to form in their relationship. Alexander had begun to dress as a Persian king and adopted Persian manners. For the Greeks, this was an alienating extravagance. A further crack in his army's trust occurred when, in a drunken quarrel, he killed one of his most trusted commanders. And finally, Alexander tried to impose the Persian ceremony of prostration, or kneeling and bowing upon the ground before the king, upon his Macedonian and other Greek soldiers. But this they would not tolerate, and Alexander abandoned the idea, for now. The next year, in 327, Alexander crossed over the Hindu Kush, out of the known world, into even stranger lands. He now led his army into the Indian subcontinent. He campaigned for over a year and reached as far as the Indus River. In 326, at the Battle of Hydaspes in modern Pakistan, Alexander won his final great battle against Porus the Elder. The battle was notable for the huge armored war elephants Porus deployed to ward off the Macedonian cavalry. While Alexander had won, this was the most costly battle he had fought. Porus's kingdom was incorporated into the empire. Alexander wanted to continue east, into the heart of India, but his army had had enough and refused to travel any farther. 
They had loyally followed their king for eight years. Now, though, in this distant land, after a costly victory, they wanted to go home. Alexander tried to persuade them, but they were too weary and homesick, and he finally relented. Much of his army boarded boats and sailed back to Susa, but the remainder endured a grueling march across the southern Iranian desert, with many perishing along the way. Finally back in Persia, Alexander had to pivot from conquest to actually ruling his gargantuan empire. His plan was to unite the Macedonians with the Persians, and he forced his officers to take Persian wives. Still restless, he began to plan a campaign to conquer Arabia. Before he could put his plan into action in Babylon, he died suddenly at the age of 32. A hundred theories have been proposed for his untimely death, from poisoning to acute pancreatitis to West Nile virus. It's hard to say what the world would be like today if Alexander had lived another 10, 20, or 30 years. Would he have conquered Arabia? Would he have journeyed west next and conquered Carthage and Rome? It was rumored he had begun to dream of a new campaign to the west. Just to speculate for a minute, I don't think his conquest of Arabia would have gone as well as his prior conquests. First, it would have to wait a few years, until his Macedonian veterans had recovered. It would be harder to coax them away from home this time. They had had their great adventure and conquered their old foe. What was Arabia or Carthage or Rome to them? Second, while he could perhaps conquer and rule the smaller city-states of the coasts, the majority of Arabia was made up of smaller nomadic tribal groups. Not easy to rule over. In the end, though, Alexander's reign was short, but still had an enormous impact everywhere he conquered. With no strong heir or succession plan, Alexander left a supermassive black hole of a power vacuum. We won't go into much detail of the next phase of Greek history, the Diadochi, which in Greek means successors. It is its own cycle of conquests and violence, like the Greek wars of the prior century, but now writ large in between states instead of cities. These wars of Alexander's relatives and generals spanned from 322 to 281 BC. In the end, here's how things shook out. In the east, Seleucus, a general in Alexander's army, controlled most of modern Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Palestine, and a significant portion of Anatolia. Egypt, Cyprus, and some of southern Anatolia were ruled by Ptolemy, a Macedonian officer and close companion of Alexander. In Macedonia and the rest of Greece, after a swirl of rulers and attempting to control Anatolia and Syria, the Antigonid dynasty, descendants of Philip, Alexander's father, by another mother, solidified their rule. Besides these three great states, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and the Antigonids, think Persia, Egypt, Macedonia, there were many other independent city-states. Sparta still sulked alone in the Peloponnese. Rhodes' navy controlled the Aegean. Pergamum in Ionia became famously rich. The Hellenic world had begun beside the enchanted Aegean Sea. In the Dark Ages, the Greeks had set out and founded new colonies across the Mediterranean. Although disunited, they had resisted conquest by an outside giant. Realizing their strength, they had turned on each other in cycle after cycle of violence, even as their arts and culture reached new heights of beauty. But the destruction and bloodshed took their toll, and their strength was sapped. 
their envy and hubris kept peace and unity from taking hold. Only when the peripheral Macedonians brought them to heel could they unite and channel their strength. Then, in a historical instant, the Hellenic world expanded in an explosion across most of the known world. Greek kingdoms stretched across Egypt, Persia, Central Asia, and even India. A string of new Alexandrias were speckled across their namesake's empire, from Alexandria, Egypt, to Kandahar, which comes from Alexandria, Afghanistan. The Hellenic culture of Greece would spread across these realms, synthesizing and fusing with local traditions. The Macedonian rulers of Egypt styled themselves as pharaohs and underwent traditional mummification practices with their dead. In the Greco-Indian realms, Greco-Buddhist art proliferated, with sculptures made with Greek styles but depicting Buddhist themes. In Central Asia, Greek hoplites would fight with the expanding Han Dynasty of China for control of the Silk Road. The Greek language became the international language of the Eastern Mediterranean. From Alexander's conquests for the next 900 years, if you knew Greek, you could travel and trade in Syria, Egypt, Anatolia, or Palestine without a need for translation. Even the insular Jews translated their holy Torah into Greek. I did forget to mention one important Greek kingdom a moment ago, Epirus. Epirus lay to the west of Macedonia, across the Adriatic from the Italian peninsula. In 282, the young, ambitious ruler of Epirus named Pyrrhus responded to a request for help from a Greek city on the boot of Italy who was at war with an Italian city called Rome. Pyrrhus jumped at the opportunity to expand into Italy, and in two masterful battles, he defeated the Romans twice. These barbarian Romans had fought surprisingly well, though, and each victory had been extremely costly to Pyrrhus. Hence the term Pyrrhic victory. In the third battle, though, the Romans had won. Short on men, he was unable to afford another victory or loss, and he headed home for Epirus. For the first time, the Greeks had gotten a taste of a new power growing to their west. A century from then, the Greek successors to Macedon would be bowing before the power of these barbarous Latins. Thanks for hanging in there and following with me through these centuries of the Golden Age of Greece and the beginning of the Hellenistic period. I hope you enjoyed getting to know the Athenians, Spartans, Thebans, and Macedonians. So much more could have been said. I didn't get a chance to talk about the schools of philosophy established by the Greeks and adopted by Rome. Platonism, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Skepticism, among others. It's time now, though, to turn our attention to Rome. I'm very much looking forward to slowing down and focusing on a shorter time period when the decades of this podcast start in 1 AD. We will be spending a lot of time with Rome for at least the first several dozen episodes. Before that, though, this next prologue episode will be important for understanding what Rome was and where it came from. In the next episode, we have 700 years of Roman history to cover, so don't be surprised if the next prologue episode is as bloated as this one. I'll see you next time. Bye.